Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome. Um, my name is Nick Enfield. I would like to just start by acknowledging that the University of Sydney is built on Aboriginal land. There's many things that can be said about that. Um, I'm a linguist and so um, I like often when I can to point out uh, that this means, of course, while we're going to be speaking English this evening, uh, there were m many different um, Australian languages spoken around this area and the Sydney language, as it is um, sometimes known, uh, spoken in this area, Daruk in that direction, Eora in that direction, uh, and these um, were and are fully-fledged, rich, elaborated languages quite capable of um, expressing outrage among other, um, uh, among other emotions. Um, I'd like to welcome you all. Uh, I'm the director of the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre, SHARC. Along with the US Study Centre, um, we are sponsoring this event, and we're very pleased to have uh, Robin Wiegman here, uh, she is involved in one of the uh, activities that we're trying to promote here through Shark, um, and this is something that we call the Ultimate Peer Review Program. So she's here uh, to work together with Lee Wallace um, on uh, battling it out over how to get her manuscript um, even more fantastic than it already is. So we're really um, happy to have um, Robin here, and we're taking the opportunity um, to give to, to have her give um, a public talk and to have this public dialogue also together with Thomas Jesson um, Adams from the US Study Center and um, Lee Wallace is going to be uh, a um, moderator or a between person we shall see um, but that's enough from me I'll hand over to Lee uh, to um, give further introduction so I'm Lee Wallace from the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies. Um, I'd like to start by just thanking Nick for that front of house promotion of Shark, which is uh, the reason that Robin's here. Now, all I have to do tonight is introduce you to Robin Wiegman, who is speaking tonight on Outrage, the Psychic Life of Trump's America. And I think there is a, a sense of energy and anticipation about that that I'm putting down to the uppercase effect. Um, and, uh, you know, so Robin will be not talking but shouting at us tonight on this, on this topic. Um, I know you're keen for us to get started, but I'll just scope out the format for you uh, uh, so you know where we're going in the next hour and a bit. So Robin is planning on speaking or shouting for about um, 45 minutes, and then Thomas, Jess, and Adams will provide a brief response to that talk. And as his almost presidential name suggests, Dr. Adams is an Americanist, a specialist in American labor history and social movements, and I said he's jointly appointed to the History Department and uh, the United States Study Center. And unlike the rest of us, uh, Thomas has been in possession of a copy of Robin's paper for a few days. So his role tonight um, uh, is to distill our initial reactions to this paper and lift them onto a higher intellectual plane. And to do that, he's going to take about five or seven minutes at the end. And I said, after that, I'll open the floor for questions. And I'm confident that many of you will have questions and comments for Robin. But I'd like you to ask you now to make those questions and comments concise, perhaps perhaps even 140 characters, or if you have a presidential inclination, please make them shorter than that. Right? So, Robin Wiegman, uh, what to say? So, as all the promotional matter declares, Robin is currently Professor of Literature in Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies at Duke University. 
Like many of you, I'm sure, I first came to know Robin through her numerous contributions to women's studies, queer theory, and American studies. The scope of her published research is enormous. Her work on gender, sexuality, and race is daunting in its historical exactness, whether she is thinking through post-slavery subjectivities or the American experience of AIDS and the way those, these ideas are taken up into academic discourses. In addition to her influential monographs, she was responsible for several agenda-setting collections, such as the Futures of American Studies and Women's Studies on its own, both from way back in 2002, the period we first met, around which we first met in person at the University of Auckland, where Robin was in New Zealand giving a keynote for the Australian and New Zealand American Studies Association Conference. She tells me that that was the first time she realised that um, the United States is a very different imaginary object depending on whether you approach it as an, as an Australian-Americanist or a New Zealand-Americanist. She has not revealed her preference among those imaginary formations, <laughs> no, but it is noteworthy that since then she has returned to Australia multiple times, if only to hang out with New Zealanders. Right? <laughs> as if there was something to be gained from looking at America from this peculiar binational perspective. That year was also the year in which um, the Women's Studies Department I was teaching in at Auckland was being disbanded, and I remember attending a, a symposium at which Robin spoke clearly and unexpectedly about women's studies as a feminist intellectual project that shouldn't be confused with departmental platforms. Um, that recognition was transformation for me, transformational for me in that context. Perhaps as a result, it is the timelessness of Robin's books and their uncanny capacity to turn disciplinary fields inside out that stays with me. It is her sustained interest in field imaginaries that makes her work so compelling, her interest in the psychic life of disciplines or the way that political desires galvanise academic fields, reproducing collective effects across critical practices. Again and again, she makes us question what our disciplinary commitments are commitments to. Most recently, she has explored the queer commitment to anti-normativity, but tonight she is turning her attention to those forms of non-compliance that now gather under the rubric outrage. Please welcome Robin Wigman as she shouts us through the psychic life of Trump's America. It's a pleasure to be here tonight and to be in Sydney and to have uh, the best host I've um, experienced in my academic uh, travels, Lee Wallace. Uh, I'm looking forward to being in conversation on Thursday about her work. I also want to thank the SHARC, as you call it. It took me a while to realize that that was its acronym, as well as I love the branding, the United States um, Studies Center for inviting me and supporting um, my time here, and Claire for making it all happen. So. This, uh, this talk has a PowerPoint that can act, uh, it kind of has a mind of its own. It's on a timer. I'm hoping that the timing will work. It might get ahead of me, it might get behind me, but there will be some, we'll make some meaning out of the relationship between what I have to say and what you get to see as we go along here. Um, the structure of my talk is what Lee told me is called a listicle, meaning that it's in 10 parts, the parts, are semi-contained uh, in, uh, in their own way. Um, it does shout in some places. Um, it maybe gets quiet in a few others. But it's the, I'm interested in outrage across the course of all 10 of these sections as feeling, as commodity, 
and as an emblem or an idea of politics. And I will weave in and out of that. In at parts, it's more academic than at, than at other parts. Okay, so here we go. One, outrage. It's not just a word, it's an emergency. The dictionary refers to it in two ways, as an action or event causing anger, shock, or indignation, as in the election was an outrage, and as the reaction of anger, shock, or indignation that an event or action generates, as in her voice trembled with outrage. Caught between the outrageous thing and the human response to it, outrage is spontaneous and circular, a sign of both cause and effect. Outrage. It's not just a word. It's a media conversation. The psychology of outrage, the morality of outrage, clicking our way to outrage. My outrage is better than your outrage. The outrage over outrage and, of course, the outrage over the outrage over outrage. Cast in contradictory terms as simultaneously personal and impersonal, outrage can be celebrated as an individual badge of honor or decried as the de-individuated state of a mass psychology. Either way, as media spectacle, outrage is worth a fortune. Outrage. It's not just a word, it's the condition of the political present. Symptoms, I mean synonyms. Indignation, fury, shock, rage, disapproval, wrath, resentment. But bigger, of course, more extensive, multidirectional, accumulative. Did you see that? Have you seen this? It's outrageous. I've never been so fucking outraged. I've never been not outraged. The dictionary example is, quote, widespread public outrage. Left outrage in the U.S. is stoked by bullies and their bully pulpits, small hand machismo, white heritage, better deals, governments that are against government, freedom guns, pussy grabbing, Twitter lies. On the right, outrage erupts over immigration, political correctness, Islam, public education, taxes, evolution, climate change, gun control, welfare queens, ungodly genders, ungodly marriages. Bipartisan in its scope, outrage has something for everyone. Outrage. It's not just a word, it's a brand name. The outrage. Shirts, totes, and stationaries for lovers of equality. This company is organized and run by a team of women. They describe themselves as bi, queer, and straight, of color, Latina, and white, atheist, agnostic, and religious. They say they're united by one thing. We are outraged, the publicity says. So we're doing something about it. We donate to organizations that fight inequality with every purchase. Join their mission. Shop now. Okay, it's a little ahead of me. I'm going to try to catch up. Outrage. It's not just a word. It's a bestseller. Take your pick. Outrage. Time for outrage. Beyond outrage. Global outrage. The death of outrage. Crimes of outrage. From outrage to action. The age of phony outrage. In a country shattered by the rise of what has been called illiberalism, everyone is outraged. 
a disunited we is in a state of outrage. But while the left might want to claim it as its effective home, outrage, I'm sorry to say, has no intrinsic political commitment. The right is outrage too. That is what illiberalism is. So while my interest hews to the left, it's important to remember outrage has no intrinsic political commitment. Two, it's 8 p.m. on November 8, 2016. I'm at a bar with a massive crowd of left-leaning well-wishers watching the U.S. election results. Friends in London are staying up all night to watch, too. North Carolina results start to come in. The tally in Virginia is already surprisingly close. I'm only one beer in, and I begin to know. I go home, turn on the TV, a friend in New York texts me at 8.45. He's going to win. I text back, I know, and am in bed by 9. At 2 a.m., I wake up and reach for my phone, an avalanche of alerts. I convince myself not to click on any of them. Was I personally shocked at the outcome? No. Did I think that a campaign dedicated to manufacturing hate rebranded as resurrection of a nation from the apocalypse of cultural liberalism and its first black president could not win. On the contrary. But that doesn't mean that I was prepared for how things would feel. Three. Shock is a frequent synonym for outrage, but these terms are hardly equivalent. Synonyms are ultimately about likenesses within a system of language not interchangeability. Even if the dictionary claims that the synonym for synonym is the word exchangeable. Shock, outrage. At the level of specification, their difference is about nuance and gradation, no matter the fact that most attempts to pin down a feeling always feel like an exercise in approximation. To be shocked is not necessarily to be outraged, though shock can compel you into outrage. But shock can also stop you in your tracks. It can annul response, and it can deaden sensation. The physiological risk of shock is death. The psychological risk of shock is disorientation, panic, anxiety. By naming its post-Cold War strategy shock and awe in 1996, the U.S. military openly celebrated its double-edged agenda of war-making, as shock and all is, was, and is as much about using the spectacle of power to assault the senses as it is about gunning the enemy down. As you might guess, the iconic emblem of shock and all goes back to the pre-Cold War era and the use of nuclear weapons in the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki which prompted Japan nine late days later to issue an unconditional surrender, thereby fulfilling American fantasies of unquestionable power, shocked into total submission. And just this week, shock and awe was used as a language that the U.S. is talking about in its recent um, military encounter with uh, North Korea. In her 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine, Naomi Klein links the military doctrine of shock and awe to the post-9-11 legalization of torture, where shock became literalized in the use of electrodes, 
sleep deprivation, 24-7 light and darkness, a full-scale overload of the human sensorium. For Klein, such shock therapy, as she calls it, has a civilian counterpart in the state re-engineering project known as neoliberal capitalism and the crises it generates through its worship of the market, corporate personhood, privatization, and deregulation. Here, government against government becomes the ideological wrecking ball that authorizes the transfer of public mo monies to private interests, a transfer that is fed, not obstructed, by disaster. She writes, disasters have become the preferred moment for advancing a vision of a ruthlessly divided world, one in which the very idea of a public sphere has no place at all. Call it disaster capitalism. Every time a new crisis hits, the fear and disorientation that follow are harnessed for radical social and economic reengineering. Each new shock is midwife to a new course of economic shock therapy. Klein's book was published in 2007, before the global economic crash of 2008, and well before the recent fires, droughts, and hurricanes that have imperiled the lives and futures of so many people in North and Central America and the Caribbean. For Klein, the catastrophic effects of current natural disasters, and she would always put this in quotes, will only stoke the ongoing wealth transfer and neoliberal capture of the state's agency to use tax dollars to privatize the public commons. The state of Florida, for instance, has already suspended what it calls burdensome regulations in the roofing code so that homes and buildings can be repaired more quickly in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma, and of course then more quickly destroyed in the next hurricane. And Houston has hired former CEO of Shell Oil to lead its recovery effort, effort, while the non-voting U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico have been left to the most shocking therapy of all, the calculated biopolitical management of populations that render some, and not others, wholly disposable, letting die. When questioned about the slow process of aiding Puerto Rico, Trump called the citizens lazy and opined that the U.S. military was having to pass out food and water to starving and stranded people, not its job, he said, before giving himself an A-plus for his administration's response. Does the shock of one's disposability lead to outrage? Or does outrage need an infrastructure, at the very least clean water, to come to life? When it comes to shock, is outrage the survivor or the means to survive? Four, the most common synonym for outrage is rage, which is commonly defined as instinctive, a primitive and highly personal emotion. Outrage is often given a loftier profile. Linked to indignation, as I said at the outset, it routinely carries the force of a moral or ethical injunction, situating the self in a non-self world. To be sure, both rage and outrage are reactive. One rages against injury, shame, personal insult. But outrage tends to raise the stakes, to shift the scale, to reverberate in the name of the impersonal, as can be seen in its most coveted targets, government, media, <coughs> laws, institutions. 
I'm tempted to say that the harm outrage amplifies routinely exceeds one's own. Does this mean that outrage is more ethical because it is less narcissistic than rage? Or that outrage is more political because rage can't see past itself? Does it mean that outrage is more justified because it has a reputation for challenging power? Or is outrage more often than not simply the amplification of the rage of the biggest bully in the room? Do our answers to these questions depend on whose outrage we are referring to? Five. In their book, The Outrage Industry, Political Opinion Media and the New Incivility, Jeffrey Berry and Sarah Soberaj analyze the media context in which outrage has been both nurtured and performed by tracing the exponential growth since the 1990s of talk radio and cable news. For them, the outrage industry is a political media environment of enormous profit as well as a media genre, so both an environment and a genre, that draws on the popularity of reality TV and celebrity culture. It is personality-centered. For those of you who are American TV junkies, think Rush Limbaugh, Rachel Maddow as the right and the left. It is reactive, ideologically selective, and politically bombastic. By producing information as melodrama, provoking anger, and forecasting doom, the outrage industry, as the authors put it, takes the form of verbal competition, political theater with a scorecard. No matter how entertaining, its corrosive effects on political culture are multiple and extreme. Indeed, Barry and Soberaj find the outrage industry quintessentially anti-democratic, encouraging incivility and partisanship at the expense of what they call political dialogue that is rational, inclusive, impartial, consensus-oriented, and fact-based. Their response, meaning their book they've done, is to expose the industry in order to dull its power, thereby reclaiming deliberation and reason. But can we study our way out of outrage? Can thinking about outrage reform outrage culture? Can people be talked out of outrage? Or more aptly, is outrage imperiled by our epistemological attempts to counter it? Popular writing on the topic is rife with an affirmative answer to these questions, repeatedly offering readers and listeners thoughtful advice about how to thoughtfully respond to outrage and its impulses. Be more thoughtful. Think first. But is outrage thoughtless? Is it the annulment of thought? For Teddy Wayne, writing in the New York Times, these are the wrong questions. For him, the matter at the heart of outrage is about its relation to action, not to thought, especially when it comes to social media platforms where outrage, he writes, quote, is the milk-toast cousin to direct action, a way to protest by tapping and clicking rather than boycotting and marching. Is outrage, as Wayne would have it, an end run around political participation, a quick fix in a world where traditional avenues of agency have gone awry, whether through overt strategies of disenfranchisement, the fragmentation of publics into consumer markets, or the convergent consensus from both the left and the right 
that the social contract as a whole has failed. In other words, is outrage a substitution for agency, the effective ghost of the Enlightenment in newly medieval times, or does Wayne have it wrong here and outrage is now where agency lives? Six. You're getting the idea that I'm not going to answer my questions, right? Six, I'm not a Facebook user. Technological triumphalists call me a dinosaur. They're sure I'll miss the revolution coming soon to our screens and phones. But I don't need to use Facebook to know it or to experience its everyday cultural effects. People clutching phones to their faces, tripping over one another in public spaces, jostling on jetways, rear-ending each other on highways, dinner parties without words, dates that have given up on offline flirting. Things have not always been this way. Research for the outrage industry was conducted during the Obama era and published two years before Trump's elevation to the Oval Office. It makes no mention of neoliberalism, rarely refers to capitalism, and gives little attention to social media platforms and the data commodity that rules them. But if one, this is Marx, those of you who know, but if one takes seriously the word industry in the book's title, what needs to be accounted for is the way that outrage not only sells, but spreads, and spreads in order to sell. One billion people worldwide use Facebook. That's one billion people who work for Mark Zuckerberg, owner of Facebook, for free. In the academic literature, this consumption as, labor, as a labor regime is called, called prosumption, a word coined in 1980 by self-described futurist Alan Toffler to depict the fusion of consumption and production that industrialization had, gen had segregated in its organization of both social space, that is the organization of the daily life into factory and home, and of social time, the work-leisure arrangement. Toffler became famous in 1970 with his book Future Shock, which heralded the arrival of the information age as a liberating one. The early ideology of prosumption as a tool for democratic and personal freedom that Toffler offered was no doubt a consequence of the fact that no one knew at first how to monetize the internet. Some of you in this room might even remember a world before Web 2.0, which is the name of the user-based interface that is now standard internet fare. For Ralph Ritzer, among other contemporary scholars, it is the transformation wrought by Web 2.0 that puts pressure on theories of presumption to come to terms with reconfigurations of labor and consumption as they have been understood in the long durée of capitalism. Like Toffler before him, Ritzer points out that prosumption does not originate with Web 2.0. It is in some sense as old as humans are, though in the context of the late 20th century deindustrialization, its influence has soared as a service economy replaces manufacturing as the first world builds and extends its wealth through information and financialization. Every time you bust your table at McDonald's, you become a prosumer, which is to say a person who provides labor in your consumption activity. Same with using Facebook. Visit a bank, machine, pump your own gas, 
you self-check in at the airport, bag your groceries, all these activities are the result of work transfers from the business to its customer, enabling greater profit through the reduction of wages for workers. Who needs bank tellers or gas station attendants or baggers if the customer has learned to prefer to do it herself? Which brings us to clicking. That simple act that makes millions by transforming the user's information, her market coordinates, friendship network, shopping habits, interests, even her zip code into a sellable commodity. Unlike older forms of commodification in which alienation was the key term of less critical analysis, consumption offers total immersion, a hyperesthetic environment in which the senses are anything but dulled and demystification requires recognizing that exploitation is not overcome by putting the self at the center of creation. This is the world of the data commodity. Its fuel is anger and outrage. Seven, is outrage an affect or an emotion? In Ugly Feelings, C.N. Nye works through the critical conversation that has been obsessed with clarifying this question. As she tells it, affect and emotion are often given opposing roles in a subjective-objective relation that initially comes to us from psychoanalysis. In this framework, emotions require subjects, are owned by the speaker, and designate feelings that can be given both a function and a meaning. Affects, on the other hand, are registered by an observer, so in psychoanalysis by the analyst, exceed the subject and remain unformed and unstructured. Nye cites Larry Grossberg and Brian Masumi as important purveyors of the subjective-objective distinction. Both give narrative and first-person subjectivity to emotion and intensity and atmosphere to affect. Nye's primary interest is when the clarity of this distinction breaks down. That is, when emotions are more impersonal than personal, or when the intensity of affect has a narrative yield. Which is why she turns to what she calls ugly feelings and the suspended agency that characterizes them. In her book, ugly feelings are things like irritation, anxiety, envy, paranoia, tone, animatedness and something she calls sublimity, sublimity, to identify a feeling that combines awe and boredom. Unlike rage, she explains, which cannot be sustained indefinitely, ugly feelings are the rats and possums of her book's bestiary of affects, not the lions, as she calls them, that have been the subject of so much popular and academic analysis. Nowhere in the book does Nye refer to outrage, but one might imagine that outrage is the Lion King, unsustainable and without emotional ambiguity. While one can, here, this is from her, while one can be irritated without realizing it or knowing exactly what one is irritated about, Nye writes in one of a handful of references to rage, there can be nothing ambiguous about one's rage or about what one is enraged about. By focusing on rats instead of lions, 
Nye draws attention away from the over-the-top passions that underwrite familiar cultural genres such as melodrama, sentimentalism, and horror to feelings that lack catharsis and are therefore, in her terms, more tonal than spectacular or overwhelming. Such a focus, she writes, offers a diagnostic opportunity for examining the switch between emotion and affect. Those passages, quote, where affects acquire the semantic density and narrative complexity of emotions and emotions denature into affects. Key to the switch is the characteristic weakness of ugly feelings, their ability to elude justification, to live just below the surface. This is why irritation is such a good example of, a, of an ugly feeling, right? You can be irritated, um, but not know why, why. Ruminating, but not erupting. But is outrage really so different from an ugly feeling? Does the switch from emotion to affect never work in lion-sized terms? To be sure, outrage, like its younger, younger sibling, rage, carries a first-person insistence. One does and can declare, I am outrage, outraged. And outrage collects and generates narrative at every term, convulsing the subject toward narrative production. As the privileged sign of the intensity of emotional intensity, outrage is catharsis in overdrive, a hyper-response. And yet, I want to suggest that outrage is not only a distinct emotion, it is also a powerful, if diffuse, sensorium. When it travels as the single figure, no less than the effect effective signature of the political condition of the present, we might say that it, too, makes the switch, superseding the emotional event of the first person particular to become the tenor and tone, the very atmosphere of an intersecting political and social world. In saying this, I am not trying to dress outrage down by denying its extraordinary or extraordinary origins in lived experience or the power it wields when wrapped in the mediation of highly crafted narrative conventions, especially those fueled by media platforms. But I do want to capture something of the way that outright outrage in Trump's America is an everyday contagion. While Nye is right that no one can indefinitely sustain lion-sized feelings, it is surely the case that the potency of outrage in an age of outrage lies not in whether or how it endures, but the effective state it crafts in keeping us all on high alert. Contra Nye, then, I'd say that the lion is not always unambiguous. While we love to give outrage, justific outrage justification, its force is about more than its roar. Eight. November 9th, 2016 was not a day, it was a depression. I felt drunk from too many hours of sleep. At school, my students were crying. My mother called from her nursing home in Indiana the state that gave us Vice President Mike Pence and the wife he has nicknamed Mother. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry, she said. They all hate the gays. All day, people forwarded me memes, links to blog posts, Facebook debates. Given where we are now, outrage was lying low. Last semester, I co-taught a course with Michael Hart 
on American studies in a time of danger, where we paid a great deal of attention to the temporality of the political present. Are we experiencing rupture or continuity? Is Trump a deviation? Is it a continuation? There's support for both perspectives. The rupture entails the various acts that upend the liberal international order that has largely governed the interrelations and domestic arenas of the Western colonial powers since World War II. Think of Trumpism and the uh, Paris Climate Treaty, the Trans-Pacific Alliance, NAFTA, and all of the, 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 all the things undone, as well as the new alliances with authoritarian governments around the world. There's also the norm-shattering discourse of the 45th President of the United States, whose 140-character bullying finds new targets daily in a mode of address that would invite Twitter to expel him on the grounds of conduct violations were the company not held hostage to its record-setting profits. There's rupture in the raw openness of race-baiting and white nationalism as an everyday enunciation, as the KKK and its avatars celebrate the spectacular display of Trump's pro-white and anti-black, anti-brown clarity. There's also the public graft of Trump's family profit, Trump, yeah, the ambition of which gets written directly into the law as when the nations listed as terrorist incubators in each of the still evolving Muslim bans includes no Muslim majority state with property that the Trump family owns. The left orientation toward rupture speaks resistance to Trump and Trumpism as a refusal to normalize, hoping against hope that such a stance counters the outrage of the new regime by refusing to concede to its terms of governance. Last year, the editors of Art Forum reiterated this emphasis on, rush, on rupture and anti-normalization in an interview with political theorist Wendy Brown titled, The End of the World as We Know It. The editors wrote, it is tempting to imagine that we are witnessing just another rotation of modernity's cycle of progress and backlash. But we must reject, they said, the false comfort that we've seen this all before. Brown, as some of you know, is a canny reader of the political conditions of the present. For the last decade, she has focused on neoliberalism and the rationality it begets in reorienting economies, state formations, subjectivities, and social worlds. Brown begins the interview by acknowledging the editor's insistence on rupture even as she insists that the present is a continuation of neoliberalism's assault on every aspect of personal and social life. Right, so the base, her basic definition of neoliberalism is that it's a transfer of all wealth from state and public commons right, to corporations. So here's a long quote of what she has to say about the present. One has to be shocked by the events of the past year, she says. Brexit, the growing strength of neo-fascist parties in Europe, the destruction of Turkish democracy, and the rise of Trump. And at the same time, we have to figure out the frame through which these, all these activities make sense. These new right movements are not just racist, they also reject classic democratic political principles and seek a strong authoritarian state in its place. This is what neoliberalism has wrought over the last four decades, this deep rejection of democracy. Yes, she says, it's incredible that Trump, 
with his unbridled narcissism and sociopathic tendencies and ludicrous chest-thumping could win. What isn't incredible is a wealthy real estate developer proposing his business success as qualifications for the presidency. This is the quintessence of the transformation of political life by markets and by economic meanings. Personality disorder issues aside, Trump is totally in line with the neoliberal assault on democracy. So continuity, not rupture. In a more recent lecture posted on YouTube, Brown continues her analysis of the erosion of democratic institutions and sensibilities that wed the present to neoliberalism, extended now through right, right well, white-wing, right-wing populism, both, and its confederacy of God, guns, and anti-government. Titled Her talk was titled, Populism, Authoritarianism, and Making Fascism Fun Again. The talk features Brown's first foray into the effective charge of Trumpism, the way it markets outrage as an anti-establishment thrill. In this, Trump's refutation of, all, of political correctness and intellectual elitism is driven home by his routine takedown of every criticism, no matter how small, as fake news. For Brown, Trumpism may be what she calls the furious death rattle of white male rule, um, but the energy it releases is emancipatory. She calls it the libidinal pleasure of freedom as disinhibition, AKA the freedom to desublimate aggression, resentment, and bourgeois social norms. In short, a kind of freedom that seduces, in her words, the young, the reckless, and the wounded to the regime because it remakes anti-democracy as fun. What strategies will counter this formation, Brown asks at the end of her talk. While the question is itself, in itself is important, what lies behind it seems to me even more so. For here, Brown puts her finger on what debates about continuity and rupture tend to ignore. That the matter is not simply about tracing which institutions and institutional arrangements or which discourses or technological formations have histories that underscore or refute the authoritarian maneuvers of an aggressively nationalist and insidiously reformulated racist state, but how we might begin to grapple with the effective conditions in which popular sovereignty moves fast and hard to the right, claiming freedom and outrage no less than the freedom to outrage as its own. In such a post-factual world, the urgent question is not what is outrage, but what does it do? And what intimacies does it invite and annul? Now we're getting to Carl. Nine, thinking is difficult, Carl Jung famously wrote. That's why people judge. But what about the way we use our thinking to judge or, making, or make our thinking a form of judgment? In an opinion piece in the New York Times titled Education in the Age of Outrage, philosopher Kelly Oliver approaches these questions by considering the consequences of outrage on the university cultures and classrooms in which we study and teach. Oliver's editorial is written from the liberal left and focuses on her concern that outrage, censoring, and public shaming have begun to replace what she calls dis, uh, critique, disagreement, and debate. 
She is especially interested in the moral authority that outrage garners in media platforms that encourage and facilitate the outrage-induced political takedown of one's colleagues and political um, comrades. In these instances, she writes, outrage becomes an end in itself, generating a left fundamentalism that can be potentially aggressive, hostile, and violent. Oliver's resolution is a familiar restitution of some of the core Enlightenment beliefs that underpin modernity and its experiment with various democratic forms, self-critical examination, arguments and analysis, and, of course, thoughtful response. To be sure, it is difficult to be against any of these things, but my thinking follows that of Eva Chernyavsky in Neo-Citizenship, Political Culture After Democracy, which argues convincingly that left critical thought of various kinds has yet to come to grips with the challenges represented by the very social transformations of which we routinely speak. For Chernyavsky, there is no return to the political culture that neoliberalism has disestablished in its dismantling of representative government in favor of a plutocracy and, its, and the decomposition of the citizenry as a body politic that goes with it. Today, she writes, it is the derealization of political life which entails our collective emancipation from the norms and the constraints of a common reality. As her title makes clear, Chernyavsky calls the new social subject produced under these conditions a neo-citizen, and she sees the derealization of the political field as the consequence of the democratic form's implosion, such that the struggle, she writes, is no longer for hearts and minds, but for data sets. Political culture in the United States, she writes, has been reconfigured along the lines of a kind of point-and-click environment in which people are cut loose to assemble their views and sensibilities from a burgeoning menu of political means and affects, variously cross-hatched with the remnants of older ideological formulations, such as ethno-nationalism, therapeutic discourses of healing and self-care, and more or less canny insights into both the autocracy of money and the depths of their abandonment by the state. In this context, the pedagogical work of the present, whether in the classroom, the office, the resistant march, the town hall, or even, we might be tempted to say, the soul, requires something more than outrage over outrage and the comforting antidote that if only we can talk ourselves down, the world will get back to normal. A derealized culture is not organized, Chernyavsky argues, around norms and norm-making. It engenders, she says, not a new form of normative culture, but one in which the fragmentation and multiplication of social and political unrealities are normalized. This is normalization without normativity which means that no matter how much we might want to call forth a past of shared values and norms to, re uh, to reorient the conduct and effective tenor of the present, the unreality of Trumpism has arrived. If I say then that outrage is both the medium and the message that brings home the fact of the unreal 
as the real time of neoliberalism, all while performing the post-liberal suspicion that facts as we know them are dead, do we have any response other than being outraged? 10. Outrage. It's not just a word. It's my object of study. An object that resists my attempt to manage it into something resembling a knowing thesis. Perhaps this is because outrage, as a feature of contemporary political culture, is far more sensational than epistemological. It favors conspiracy, not argumentation. Its blood is suspicion. It is less private than anger, more performative than rage, and absolutely uninterested in sympathy. Desperate for company, but alert to betrayal, Outrage is both a mode of agency and agency achieved by other means. At its personal best, it offers redemption from self-incrimination. As a political project, it is theology in a minor key. Its profit motive operates via sensory connection. Its sociality is oriented toward life-sustaining affinities. As a weapon, outrage targets the tentative, humiliates the undecided. It loves to beat everyone to the punch. What it means is not commensurate with what it does. And how it feels, we might as well admit it. Outrage is as irresistible as it is exhausting. All right. Um, first, I'd like to thank um, Professor Lee Wallace for inviting me to respond, and especially thank uh, Robin for sharing this paper with me ahead of time. Um, it's been a special honor to be here. I've been reading Robin's work since I was an undergraduate in history and women's studies in the early and mid-90s, and the fact that I'm actually responding to some of her work is, again, a particular honor for me. Um, so I'm a historian by training, but also by intellectual inclination. and. First, the questions I want to put on the table here tonight come out of some at least analytically historical concerns. And I also want to add to, I've, I think I've read over this paper three or four times, and it's so good that in the process of watching Robin tonight, I scribbled a whole bunch of new notes. So if I start to be a little confusing, it's because I'm trying to get to these new notes that I put on there, um, but it might not make sense. So one of the things I've tried to convey to my students and in some of the more popular writing I've done recently um, is at least a broad sense of historical perspective on our various emotional and affective responses um, to Trump's election and his ongoing presidency. And for me, and at least my age cohort of Americans, the obvious point of comparison is the middle months of 2002, well through the following years. The months, that is, when the Bush administration was clearly manufacturing justification for the invasion of Iraq and a subsequent war that, depending on which survey and methodology you prefer, has resulted in somewhere in the range of 500,000 to a million deaths in Iraq alone. If asked to remember the emotion that most characterized myself and my cohort during these years, outrage would certainly fall toward the top of the list, right alongside of sorrow. I bring this up not to pull the annoying historian's party trick of saying this isn't new, but rather to pull the slightly less annoying and a bit more analytically um, minded question of what contextually has changed. Um, and this is where I think, I mean, one place where I think Robin's paper is particularly amazing. Um, she has drawn out how outrage or perhaps something like it in the contemporary moment, I think, very much will be a subject 
of historical analysis 20, 30, 100 years from now. Whereas I think the outrage that some of us felt, right, in those early years of the aughts, I hate that phrase, on the other hand, um, will certainly not be um, a subject. So she, that is to say, she has hit on something that has changed, or at least contextually changed. Um, so towards the end of her talk, I read her to suggest that outrage is not simply effect of the current moment, but also cause. Quote, theology in a minor key, which is a beautiful phrase, more performative than rage, targets the tentative, has a profit motive, and most importantly for me anyway, absolutely uninterested in sympathy. Whether she means to suggest this or not, if outrage is both all these things and a key facet of contemporary American life, that is literally the state we live in, as she puts it at the beginning, and I see no way in which it cannot be at least somewhat causative, or it has to be related to the immense political demobilization that is, at a basic epistemological level, primary cause for this moment. To quote the historian Barbara Jean Fields, ultimately, the only check on oppression is the strength and effectiveness of resistance to it. And this, I think, makes our current moment of outrage distinct, for perhaps, and perhaps I am wrong, I don't think the outrage of those of us who spent much of the first decade of this century waffling between outrage profound sadness at our complete inability to produce change over what was being done in our names, over, in our names in Iraq, Afghanistan, and countless other places around the world, while maybe less productive than other emotional responses, was certainly not causative of the events that outraged us. And I don't, again, I don't want to sound like I'm doing a Jeremiah here. It's not, this is not get off my lawn. This is not, things were better back then. It is just simply to say the context has changed and what outrage is doing. Again, the first, the, some of the brilliance of Robin's paper is again, pointing out precisely how that context perhaps has changed. So in re reading Robin's paper, I kept being reminded of moments over the last couple years where outrage seemed to me to be, anyway, to be examples of what got us here in the first place. Um, she talks a bit about outrageous industry, and I want to kind of point out one example that's really troubled me over the last year. So in the aftermath of Heather Hare's tragic death in Charlottesville, Virginia, two venerable progressive organizations in, in the United States faced two very different trajectories. The Southern Poverty Law Center, a research organization founded to track hate groups, saw its donations skyrocket from the already record levels that it achieved after Trump's election. Now, the SPLC has now and always has trafficked in outrage. Its researchers have consistently refused to answer the question of exactly how many people are members of the 954 hate groups that they report and track in America. Um, 954 sounds like a lot, of course, and there is important work to be done in having people monitor some of the larger and more me uh, menacing of these groups, of course. Scholars and reporters, though, who have looked at closely at them find that most of these groups, in fact, amount to one or two people, perhaps a small mailing list, one or two active members, that is to say. Um, and that contrary to the stark picture being presented by the SPLC, collective memberships in such groups is actually on a downward turn, although in the last year that has been debated. Thus, SPLC has an incentive to fan outrage and, I would suggest, deep fear over events like Charlottesville in a more apocalyptic vision of the present than current events perhaps warrant. On the flip side is the ACLU, or the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union, which had defended the Klan's rights to, to march in Charlottesville two days before. Saw its membership tumble and donations tumble as well. Never mind that the organization had been behind nearly every effective legal challenge to Trump's discriminatory policies towards Muslims at the time, as well as the undocumented, or never mind that it and the pantheon of progressive jurists, ranging from Thurgood Marshall to Ruth Bader Ginsburg to William Brennan, have always defended the Klan, Nazis, and other monsters' public rights to speak, that they never lie, that this is what they do. Um, for a week, hashtag fuck the ACLU trended on Twitter as it saw its post-Trump bump and donations eviscerate, 
and with it, its inability to do its more mundane things, like prop up the defense efforts of poor and struggling municipalities and their sanctuary city laws, um, as well as attempt to push against, again, some of the more on-the-ground things happening to Muslim immigrants in America. To paraphrase the great scholar of Los Angeles, Mike Davids, outrage, like fear, tends to prove itself. More recently, I'm reminded of a recent comment by one of America's leading outrage traffickers. And as this talk has quite brilliantly pointed out, outrage is a commodity that can and is trafficked in. The liberal MSNBC um, uh, speaker, Joy Ann Reed, who um, intimated that the two 20,000 striking teachers and school service staff in West Virginia were putting their jobs, pensions, and livelihoods on the line in what to me anyway has been perhaps the most impressive act of political resistance the US has seen in the last year or so, and much longer arguably, could really make a difference if they voted for Democrats. Now, never mind for a moment that these are teachers and predominantly union members, two demographics that even in a state like West Virginia still overwhelmingly vote Democrat, or the fact that Democrats have controlled that state's government for most of the last two decades and are just as much to blame for underfunding the state's social services and siphoning off money to uh, natural gas and coal companies. What struck me above all else, though, was Reed's thinly veiled outrage that these people she seemed to presume were Trump supporters, or at least non-voters, should deign to expect decent wages and working conditions. I'll talk about absolute uninterest and sympathy. And that, to me, is what is precisely most different about this particular historical iteration of outrage and the heart of the problem that Robin has so brilliantly diagnosed, not just in some abstract broader public, but one she elegantly makes clear exists in all of us. Previous moments of outrage were seemingly, I think, perhaps somewhat tied to instrumentalism. I think of Cindy Sheehan's extended protest over Iraq, which I don't think was ever about her outrage, though she clearly was outraged. It was about building solidarity with precisely some of the people who could be most effective in pushing the Bush administration um, to dial back its war effort. Soldiers, military families, the parents of people who had passed away in Iraq, right? Um, and again, this move towards pushing towards solidarity, that is to say sympathy, is behind a lot of other things. I was thinking about um, in Robin's home teaching state of North Carolina. Um, one of the most fascinating to me moments of the anti-Vietnam War movement was when a variety of anti-Vietnam folks, instead of taking to the streets, began taking to what they called coffee houses outside of um, military bases that were sending soldiers off to Vietnam, not to, in order to work one-on-one -on -one with soldiers about to go um, into South Vietnam with the purpose of pushing them against the war effort, right? This is in the early 70s. So as some folks have been arguing for a while, and to conclude here really quick, neoliberalism represents nothing more than capitalism freed from opposition. And if Robin is right regarding outrage's deep disinterest and sympathy, then outrage is cause of the present state precisely because it pushes people away from the instrumental solidarity that is the basis of any real effective in Fields' notion um, of essentially politics, any effective opposition to it. Thanks. That was fantastic. Um, I thought you were going to rescue me from my pessimism at the beginning by being able to produce a, a more historicizing narrative on the side of continuity, but where you have ended up is actually even more pessimistic than um, than I would like to prepare myself to be. But it goes, it, it, it's interesting in relationship to 
the Eva Chernyavsky book that I uh, talked about at the end, because one of the things that, what she means by derealization and about, about political culture after democracy is that a democratic social form, in her terms, the governing, the, those in, gov in government, those who govern have to solicit the consent by those who are governed, right? So that it's hegemonic in that Gramscian sense, that the, um, so that the, the people who live in a, a, a democratic society consent to be governed by those in, under rule. And her argument there is that, in fact, the United States is no longer a hegemonic uh, you know, formation. And therefore, what you see in, I mean, she, the book came out right before Trump, but she's got a blog at the NYU um, press that published it that talks a little bit about this. But in conversations I've had with her, one of the things that she's very, inter one of the ways to extrapolate that in terms of like the way that the Trumpism operates is that it's pure branding, right? That the address from the state is literally only to the people who have voted for him. There is n absolutely no interest in the, in the idea of a public. It is about you know, the consumer orientation of the constitution of a voter, or in Chernyavsky's terms, a neo-citizen, right, who, whose vote can be like bought to, uh, in a certain sense, but not through a relationship to the public or to the commons. And it's that kind of, it's what that brings into the, uh, the, uh, for the question about resistance and oppositionality that is, I think, the, the dire condition of the present. Her last chapter in that book is about Occupy Wall Street, which a lot of people wanted to say was the new political movement of the 20th century, right? That, and her analysis is that, no, it was an alternative, it, it staged itself as an alternative way of life and as an alternative governance structure, right? Completely con consensual, living in places together, and that it was as though that alternativity, as powerful as it was, was not staged in, in a way that could actually intervene in the modes of governance. It could only find a space to the side of those, right, or outside of them. And that the piece, so that, you know, she was kind of arguing with those people, some like my colleague Michael Hart and a number of, and even Wendy Brown, who wanted to see the roots of a return to a kind of, you know, massification of political dissent. There's been some enthusiasm around the Women's March last year when Trump was elected, but also enormous critique of what it meant that people wore the pink hats and who was excluded from its symbolic, you know, reservoir. And it's in also in that sense, when I talk about Kelly Oliver's conversation of the way that the left finds its ability to critique those on the left more satisfying, more politically capacious than to figure out how to speak to a right for whom there is no conversation to be had, right? Or how to speak to a government structure that doesn't actually have to listen, doesn't have to register at all. So that's just to add a little more, I guess, of the conundrum that, and, and why this talk is moving around in a lot of places, but is not really coming down anywhere yet because I'm just trying to get some handle on what the, not even handle, I'm just trying to explore the sense, what it means that, at, you know, outrage is an emotion. It requires narrativization. I tried to give it narrativization. I gave it that personal stuff, but at the same time, it's an affect. It's a sensorium. It's a kind of state that is amorphous in the way that it operates and the way that it tags on, you know, touches everything in its commodification. What about the mainstream movement and the um, students that are walking out tomorrow at 10 o'clock and said they 
about the gun control compared to his powerful, more powerful than the natural rifle that they've traded, even though they've, they've now said, oh, they're going to sue Florida and the states because they want to stop people getting those guns before 21 or whatever. But the thing is, that's a groundswell movement. Like out here, Australia, there's groundswell movement because people want to set up with both political parties here in Australia and stop this saying in America because they don't do anything. They promise, they promise, they promise. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that there's incredible optimism right now about the, especially about the Parkland students and their project. I think Me Too is a slightly different case in that it's the, it has been most powerful in terms of the entertainment industry and the media industry, where a lot of their their moral courage is actually very much in line with a kind of neoliberal branding sort of thing. So that they're, you know, they're worried about their the commodity brand, um, and we have to, I mean, I'm editing a special issue on Me Too for the journal Differences, and some of the people that are contributing are trying to think about, you know, what it means that the moral capacity to speak for a public, right, is in the Me Too movement, we see it fully transferred from the state to corporations. And even though we want the corporations to act in those ways, it does represent, in, in the absence of any kind of state response, any kind of government. I mean, look, I mean, we see who the president is, right? I mean, you know, in terms of the issues of harassment. So that's an interesting piece of it. The, uh, just today in the U.S., the stuff came out about the guns, and the White House is now going to back away fully from raising the things. Right, right. So, I mean, yeah. But so what it means is that there are these little moments. I mean, this is where I think that the conversation about the uh, about the um, uh, outrage industry so defines the way in which Trump organizes his public political culture, right? As all outrage, as personality-centered, as and so can stage these conversations, but then always walks them back into the po pocket of corporate capital. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Um, you do talk at some point about normalization mm -hmm. in your talk. And I would argue that right now we see a lot of normalization of outrage. Mm. And yeah. it seems that it's That's a standard true. narrative for all things Trump. Okay. Everything related to him or everything? Any, any action that he takes seems to be met with the same level of outrage. And it seems, first of all, I'm not a fan of him. I would have preferred Hillary win. I'm not a fan of Hillary either, but she would have obviously done better. But the issue is, I think, that we see an exaggeration and sometimes miscategorization of things that Trump does, despite the fact that he has plenty of things to do terribly on his own. <laughs> but we, we match everything for better. We match Eric Trump meeting with the Russians with the same level of outrage as Trump calling certain country shit. Mm -hmm. So are we not doing a disservice in making sure that everybody is reacting the same way to every event? Well, you know, partly what I'm trying to say is that outrage has no intrinsic political commitment, right? I mean, in the sense that the left is as as mobilized by the data commodity uh, that uh, of outrage of, and of the media production of it. So the liberal media, the the left left in the way that it is uh, is also very much engaged with and susceptible to the affective environment of outrage. Right. So I'm less interested in differentiating between what deserves more outrage than less outrage and much more interested in the fact that it's always outrage. Right? 
you know, it's outrage on the part of the KKK and it's outrage on the part of the Southern Poverty Law. Like your, your point is beautifully taken, right? The way in which the coffers for left political projects actually require outrage just as much as those that are on the right. So that's kind of the, that's my argument about the sensorium, right? Like that it's the atmosphere as opposed to just a distinct emotion or feeling. I almost want to ask Thomas what he thinks about that question, right? Because it's clearly, I mean, part of what the, your commentary is about is when, you know, outrage's ability to mobilize, right? But it's there. There is something about the present moment where, I mean, especially in the, and this goes back to your question, in, in the in the continuous outrage that people feel, that or that, and the manufacturing, the constant, you know, the 24/7 news cycle. That that production of outrage, the risk is, and this is what uh, people have worried about. The risk is that, you know, the it, people cannot sustain their focus on any po po any political prob problem long enough because one can just move, you know, kind of from one thing to another. And there are people who, who believe that that's a that's a Trumpian strategy, right? Because it's a strategy of the outrage industry itself, which works on reality TV, which is where he kind of learned his own political performativity. You know, so, uh, I mean, I don't see how any political work can be done without people being angry and upset and moved out of their every, you know, how they're, the structure of their everyday life into some kind of contact, or what you're saying, with some kind of attempt at solidarity and sympathy with, with others, some, you know, way to do it, but. half the campaign um, for marriage, but I don't think outrage was the winning emotion, affect, I don't know, I'm still confused as to what we're calling it, but um, I mean, I guess I just was just briefly going to suggest that what I thought perhaps, and again, as a non-expert watching it from here, was simply that um, its success was based on what I might, what I was trying to get at was a, a uh, instrumentalist solidarity, right, between people it directly affected and family members, right, who 20 years ago may not have been, right, but people, again, making clear to their uncle, to their grandfather, that, they, hey, this affects me, right, this affects me as someone you care about, and, yeah, there is outrage over a growing religious inflection in politics, but to me, the more kind of the for versus against seem to be much more of the effective thing, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's there there are conversations among people who are trying to uh, what gauge what it means to be watching to be watching the end of American Empire when you've been a critic of it forever, right? You know, I mean, not that you want to see empire, but that the undoing of this is I mean, Wendy Brown, the undoing of of a democratic society, the the establishment of authoritarianism. And that authoritarianism is a, a very much about boundary making, right? And about non -part, not participating, you know? And so that, um, yes to the importance of the U.S. not pretending to be the beacon, you know, for the world, but also the kind of, um, 
what, the, the, the inability to think about its actions in relationship to others, right? This is also another thing about, I mean, outrage means that, you know, that's where, it, like, outrage can also annul people's response and not think about their dependency in relationship to other or the precarity of others. Yeah, 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 and then people can't see what's actually happening. Yeah. Thanks, Robin. I really enjoyed that paper, and that's not an unusual thing. I know most of enjoy your papers, but the thing I enjoyed about this paper was the Robin like image driven in a way. I know. I learned how to do PowerPoint. Are my transitions great between the slides, folks? No. I mean, I, when I started uh, to work on this, and I've only given it one t once before, and I um, wanted to have some visuals because I've, I was aware that I was trying to produce a certain kind of nausea through the, I mean, in the, the, the fast movement of them, right, that, so that, that they were impressionistic because also I, and that there was something, it wasn't really thought out carefully, but there was something about the, the impression of images, the, having them move, wash over you in a way that I thought was um, useful. But I did, I was thinking more recently about the relationship between the personal and the impersonal, just in the structure of the discourse. You know, right? So some of the sections talk about myself personally, and then some of them are really trying to work through like an academic register. So there are these different kinds of, um, you know, narratives. Then there's the 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 I that's produced. The author is in a very different relation to the text that she has supposedly produced, or that she says she has produced um, in the process. So you're right. I, but I could I should think we can talk about that later more. But, but it is quite different than, I, mean, I was interested in, I think outrage is performative, so I was also trying to be, you know, to do a paper that was more performative. Plus I didn't want you all to leave in the middle of it, <laughs> which sometimes happens in these like really densely academic papers. You were very good. Yeah. Um, thanks, I have a few boring questions, but oh. I'm really interested in your response to this. That's the way that something like um, outrage kind of is going to put gender and race, you know, and easy Given your sort of take on it as this kind of affect now, this sensorium, really diffused thing, I wonder how you see or how you might track the way that it's mapped onto things like gender and race. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, um, I think one of the things I find most interesting is the way that it, the, the way that outrage works for whiteness, especially white masculine this inhibition in the way that Wendy Brown was talking about it, right? You know. You know. Yeah, I don't know that she's saying it's outright. I, well, she, what she's worried about is the calling, is on campuses the way that a lot of times students on the left are destroying their own organizations by critiquing each other in ways that make it impossible for them to sustain solidarities, even instrumentalized ones around certain kinds of issues, you know, so 
Um, uh, and I mean, for me, and my it just reminds me of the lesbian feminism of the 70s, you know, where, which we did as well. I mean, it's an interest. It's not. It's that's not new, right? The way in which uh, kind of the personal is political, and the ways in which people would sort of police people's kind of political personhood. You know, do you shave? I mean, it was banal, but do you shave? Was a big one, kind of. In, yeah. But anyway, I think that's what she. She wasn't outraged. Outraged. She was trying to. She wants to see, especially on campuses, there to be a more you know, mobilized and maybe sympathetic, if we want to use that word, left political projects that are emerging for students. You know, but the, the space of the campuses are really um, deeply fragmented right now. I think that's what she would say. Um, short-term plans for some of the legislation to do with tourism and privacy electives Yeah. Well, everything you raise, you know, the current administration wants to arm teachers and not give money to public education. That is, you know, we are in a very bad spot in the sense that some of, uh, you know, the legislature is all owned by the, you know, corporate, very rich billionaires who have just received an enormous windfall from, you know, so essentially bought their complicity just today. The GOP's House uh, committee that was investigating Russian interference has released their report to say there was none and that um, there was no collusion and there was none and we knew I know we knew that would happen I'm just reporting I'm reporting and that the that the um, and if there was any Russian interference it was actually to help Hillary not the others so what we I mean you know what I think a lot of people in the US are holding our breath to see whether what is hoped for for the 2018s which is that people will sort of you know vote but then the voting is only then to change you know the, like um, Thomas was saying the Democrats have been you know completely in league with a whole bunch of you know corporate neoliberalism so the idea of how you change it from the ground up I think that that's this is the struggle of the moment is how do you oppose, you know, what is the oppositional position when so many of the previous ideas about how you stand massification, you know, voting projects, getting your legislature, all of those things seem to have no yield right now. And I think that that is, I think it's in that context where then outrage becomes a satisfying affect, right? It makes you you know, it's it's something. I mean, it's better than than not, than nothing. Like in order to have some feeling that has you in the present political moment. I think it depends, right? You're you're saying for individuals. I mean, many people are in a constant state of outrage. What they're outraged at constantly changes. That goes to that gentleman's know kind of question or it's the general state of just to be outraged at the despair that one feels or the uh, to be outraged at the inability of people to share the sorrow over the conditions of the present I don't just mean Trumpism I mean the last like say 45 really kind of 45 years since the student since the civil rights movement and the student student movement 
you know, the transformation. I mean, what it means that three years ago, you know, Obama was in office, and then the birther, you know, king becomes this this transformation. I mean, it, people are. In, that's why I spend a lot of time talking about shock because shock is it's, it's important to register the the shock that people feel, and it's not so much any now just about the shock of the election, but the shock of what it feels like to have this regime and its desire for authoritarianism. It's you know, it's, it's and and to have the reality show that is itself an outrage show that plays every day, right? So I do think that we're in this, you know, one wants to quit responding, reacting, right? And, and to settle down, but not to settle down in order to not to feel, but to figure out how to organize feeling to particular kinds of ends. I think that's the... You know, which is not to, you know, want to have the enlightenment idea of reason and debate again and that sort of thing. I mean, we don't have the commodity culture for that. Yeah, that's the duration, yeah. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.